Welcome again, everybody. My name is Ben Kearns. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. And um, one of my favorite things, I've always enjoyed history. I majored in history in high school. And uh, I always think it's fascinating how people interpret uh, historical events. And you may not know this, but in the 1500s, a long, long time ago, um, the Spanish... Um, uh, Spain was this incredible powerhouse in the world, right? They were colonizing the new world. They were starting to colonize Africa. They had this giant armada, right? If you ever heard of the Spanish armada, like this world famous armada, and they dominated the world because of it. Well, um, in the the mid 1500s, the the British kingdom was starting to rise in power and they were gonna battle uh, Spain for supremacy of the water. And in 1588, these two giant navies come and they clash and they have this giant battle. And uh, so this is the battle of the Spanish Armada. There was no uh, TikTok back then, so they had to go by paintings. Um, So that's what this is. This is a painting of that time. So I have no idea if this is what it looked like or not, but that's what, there's this giant naval battle. And what's interesting is the Spanish Armada was giant. It was so much bigger than the English uh, Navy. And the, the English thought they were going to be goners for sure. But in the middle of this battle, this giant storm comes in and slams the, the Spanish Armada against the, the, against the, um, the shore in Scotland and wipes out a third of the Armada. Is that incredible? And I mean, not if you're Spanish. If you're Spanish, you're like, that's awful. But if you're British, you're like, this is incredible. And this is what we learn, right? History is written by those who win. And so because the British win, when you read the history of this, the way that they framed it was, hey, there wasn't just a storm. They had bad navigation. They're like, oh my goodness. See, Spain is a Catholic powerhouse and the British were Protestants. And they were like, oh my goodness, this proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is for the Protestants and not the Catholics. And you can tell because God intervened and they actually called it the Protestant wind, right? Now, if you're, if you're Spanish, you're like, uh, I don't think so. You know, you're gonna have a totally different interpretation. But for the British, they said, hey, this is God showing up in the world intervening on our behalf and proving that our way of life is right, which is kind of unfortunately how almost all humans are. And what's interesting, through all of human history, that is actually how humans have postured themselves, that we are the center of the story, that if we, and, and we, we don't fully understand how the world works. And so all the way up until about 100 years ago, every human was like, there are gods or there's a God and they control the stuff we can't control. But if we're good people, then God will leave us alone. Or even better, if we're good people, God will bless us. And if we're bad people, God will punish us. And because we're the center of the universe, we want to live lives in such a way that we're not punished. That's kind of like the human posture. That's how humans have engaged religion forever and ever. And what's so unique about the God of the scriptures is that Yahweh is not this mysterious God who's just where humans are his plaything. He's a God who loves his people. But he said, actually, you guys aren't the, the center of the story. We are not the center of the story. We don't live a certain way to be blessed or cursed. That God says, no, I'm the center of the story. That God is the king. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of our lives. He's the king of kings. He's the Messiah. That God wants to clarify that he is the center of the story. That all of human existence, all of human history centers around him and around his story. And now it is true that if we live according to God, right, we'll be blessed. If we do things that are against God's will, right, that we'll be punished or disciplined. But it's not, we don't live out of our own selfish desires. We live as faithful people who want to honor God. And so that's a really unique difference, I think, that Christians bring to the table because all religious people want to be noble and virtuous and righteous. And Christians also want to be noble and virtuous and righteous. That's 100% true. But Christians have this added invitation that we're invited to be people 
who live by faith, right? All summer long, we've been looking at Hebrews 11, that we want to be people who live by faith, that we don't just live good lives so that we get our rewards now, but that we live by faith, which means that we step out into this unknown and we live ways that honor God, that um, honor his kingdom, that move his kingdom forward, even if it costs us everything, right? Even if it's devastating for us, because the story is not about us, it's about the kingdom of God. And what's been so fun is all summer long, right? We've been looking at... uh, Cain and Enoch and Abraham, Isaac and Sarah and Jacob and Moses, all these incredible heroes of the faith, these women and men who said, yes, we have lived by faith. We're going to step out in faith. And so Hebrews chapter 11, uh, verse 1 says this, now faith is a confidence in what we hope for and is the assurance that we, what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. And so all those people's stories, we're, we're talking about them, not because we just want to know our history, but this was written by the author of Hebrews after the time of Christ saying, hey, we have something to learn from these people. These ancients were commended for living in such a way that honored God and moved his kingdom about. And now I want you to learn from that as well. And so I'm like, I'm all about it. This whole summer has just been rocking my world as God is convicting me and challenging me because I'm not, that's not my natural posture. I'm not the natural guy who's like, I'm going to step out in faith. Like I want to see the road and then I'll go down the road to the death, but I want to see the road. That's how I'm in natural posture. So all summer I've been wrestling this down to the ground. So I'm so excited that I get to preach. And so I open up my scriptures to figure out, awesome God, who is the hero of faith that we're going to talk about this morning? Who's the hero that we're going to be so inspired by? And uh, it's not a hero, it's a battle. How awesome is that? It's a battle. So it's the battle of Jericho. So chapter 11, verse 30 and 31 says this, By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around for seven days. And by faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. So this morning, um, we're going to look at the battle of Jericho. And what's, and the next, well, what's fascinating is this, in this battle, it's the most barbarian barbaric, horrific battle scripture, I think, in the whole Bible. In fact, it is, for me, it is one of those, like, you know, I I don't want to think about it too hard. Like, somebody like, if if there's aliens, I messed up. Well, for me, what do I do with Jericho? Like, Jericho is a very hard, challenging scripture. And yet the author of Hebrews is like, "Uh, that battle's awesome. And we want to learn from that and be those people. So this morning, we're going to kind of take a look at what in the world happened at the Battle of Jericho and kind of the barbarism around it. But I think there's a way through it because the author of Hebrew compels us that we have to wrestle through these scriptures to get to the other side. And then next week, we're gonna look at Rahab, which is, I think, one of the most progressive stories in all of scripture, all within the same battle. So um, if you will humor me, today we're gonna take a look at Jericho, this idea of being strong and courageous. But first of all, we need to figure out where we are in the story. Some of you are Bible scholars and you got this thing on lock, but I think it's just a helpful recap. This picture is a picture of, of Mount, um, oh my goodness, I want to say Naboo from Star Wars, but that's not it. Nebo, Mount Nebo, right? So this is Mount Nebo. And, um, and what it is, is uh, it's this mountain on the east side of Israel. And it's the, it's the mountain that overlooks all of Israel. And so this is where Moses uh, was. This is, the, this is the, Moses at the very end of his life. He gets to invite up this mountain and gets to see the promised land. He goes, this is where your people, God's people are going to go and live. Now, the reason why Moses is there and why they're in this journey is because you remember Abraham uh, was called by God to leave Ur 
to leave Samaria and go into Canaan. And that was going to be his promised land. And uh, so he goes and he moves with his wife and they don't have any kids, remember? And God's like, made this covenant. You're going to have a ton of kids. The world's going to be blessed because of you. This is going to be your land forever. And he's like, we have no kids. We have no idea what you're talking about. And God makes this incredible covenant with him. He falls into this deep sleep and God makes this covenant with him and, and, and says, this is what's going to happen. And what's so fascinating is in this covenant, at the very end, Genesis chapter 15, in that little covenant, he says, hey, in this covenant, this is your land. You're going to leave for a while, but don't worry, your descendants are going to come back. And says, but don't worry, because the sins of the Amorites have not reached their full conclusion. Like, that's kind of a weird verse. And you have to just kind of put that in the back of your mind. But basically, the people of Canaan were living very poorly, to say the least. And, um, and so... There's all this stuff that's happening in the background. Abraham says, okay, I don't even know what's happening, but thanks for, the, thanks for the covenant. Abraham ends up having a child, Isaac. They have Jacob, has all the kids. They leave Canaan in the, in, there's a famine, right? They leave Canaan. They go to Egypt and they're welcomed in Egypt. They start living in Egypt, being prosperous. And then the next Pharaoh turns them all into slaves. They're slaves for 400 years. And then after 400 and some odd years later, God rises up Moses and says, okay, Moses, you're gonna be my man and I'm going to use you. You're going to step out of faith. And he goes to Pharaoh. And what's the famous line he says to Pharaoh? He says, let my... That's right. Oh, look at... I got to love 1045 service. You guys are tracking with me. Thanks, Julian. I heard you. So, all right. So, so that's what happens. And then they go into the promised land. And of course, right away, they sin. They screw up. God punishes them and says, hey, listen, your generation, you saw all my things and you weren't going to be faithful. So we're going to wait for a generation. So for 40 years wander around the promised land. At the end of those 40 years, you get to the book of Deuteronomy, which is the second telling of the law. Because Moses had to retell the law, right, to these people, because this whole second generation was, weren't alive when God did all the miraculous things in Egypt. So they go to Mount Naboo. Is that how you pronounce it? And I'm all messed up, right? They get to there and they say, okay, this is where you're going. And if you go to the top of the mountain, and this is a little sign, and it says Jericho, this way, Jericho, 15 miles, you can see the, the city. And Joshua could see, this is the city. This is the place where God has called us. And God has said, okay, I want you to be my man, to be strong and courageous. And you are gonna go and take down the city and you're gonna conquer this land. And there's a city with all these walls, right? You know the story. And God says, listen, this is my battle. This isn't your battle. You can't do it all by yourself. And plus, it's about me. I'm the center of the story. Follow me, and you're going to do this thing. And remember, they have to march around the city and yell and scream, and then the walls fall down. They go in. That's how we're going, right? So this is where we're at in the story. So now we're all caught up. So let's go to Joshua chapter 6, and uh, we're going to begin uh, in the story. So it says this, Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands. Except he hasn't yet. Jericho is this big city with all these rocks. But God's already like, Hey, see? I'm going to do it, along with its king and its fighting men. I want you to march around the city once with all of the armed men. Then you're going to do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark, and on the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing their trumpets. Not the best battle plan, but it's an incredible story. It goes on and says this, When you hear the sound of the loud blast of the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout, and then the wall of the city will collapse, and the army will go up, and everyone will go straight in. I mean, there's been so many cartoons about this. When I was a kid, there was like a fun song you sang about Joshua fighting the battle of Jericho, and you know, you ooga booga, and you do all these shouts, and get all the kids to scream at camp. And it's like this incredible story, right? Because where, where there's this city that's too big that God's going to say, all right, Joshua, this is now going to be God's city. 
That's how I've always read it. That's why I was all inspired by it. But as you read through the story of Joshua, it takes a, takes a little turn here. So Joshua chapter 6, verse 20 says this. When the trumpet sounded, the army shouted. And at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. Praise God so far. So everyone charged straight in and they took the city. Why couldn't there just be a period? If there was a period, we could just go on and enjoy our life and love God forever and ever. But there isn't. Instead, it says this. Then they devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it. Men, women, young, old, cattle, sheep, and even the donkeys. Can you believe that? That's the word of God. And I'm not going to lie. I love the scriptures. I value the word of God. I have a very high view of the word of God because all of the promises, all of the passages about who Christ is and what Christ has done and what Christ longs to do in the world, like I want those things to be true and I want to trust those things. And so when the same Bible that has all of this incredible inspiration for me also then has something like this, I'm like, whoa, what in the world? Because I could just say, hey, this passage of scripture doesn't matter but then which parts of the scriptures do I like don't matter, right? And so th this morning, I just thought, gosh, if we're gonna really be people who love Jesus and take his promises seriously and lean into all that God has for us, then we have to also lean into some of the harder things. And so I thought we'd just spend a few minutes wrestling these things to the ground. We don't need to be scared of scripture, but we wanna wrestle down what in the world these scriptures mean. I know, when you're talking about genocide, why not some WWE, just to lighten the mood uh, for a second. So... I like took this deep dive and I totally jacked last sermon because I just let them go on my little mental jaunt into like the abyss. So I'm not gonna do that for you. So you're welcome. Thank you for being second gathering. But I just want you to know that there is such an incredible wealth of information, of archeological evidence, of biblical scholars, of historians who have all been trying to wrestle these things out. It's easy to just write it off and say it never happened or to write it off and say these people were just barbaric and horrible people. But we know through the scriptures, right? The author of Hebrews said, no, there's something incredible that happened at, at Jericho. and We need to at least take it seriously. And so I just thought I'd give a couple uh, kind of top, you know, 30,000 foot view of what in the world's happening at that battle so that we can get to the main meat, which is how do we actually be the kind of faithful people that God's talking about. So here's a couple things to think about. One is that the book of Joshua was actually written in a certain genre. Like we think of the Bible's written, it's, it's like a textbook. It's like history. It has editors and bibliographies and, uh, and footnotes. And it's written in a certain way that makes sense to our scientific mind. Or, but it's not, right? Like the book of Genesis is it's a poem. It's written in poetry form. And so you have to read poetry with a certain lens on, right? Well, the way that history was written back then, there's a certain genre called conquest genre. And what that meant is that basically kings, they write, like the winners write, the, the, the victors write the history. And so you walk into a battle, doesn't matter if you won the battle, doesn't matter if you lost the battle. Like they found these things called stels, there's these giant stone monuments, and they tell the story of certain battles. And there's this Assyrian king, Sennacherib, I think that's how you pronounce it, whatever. And he's telling the story of this battle. But according to the biblical text, it was a battle that he lost. But that doesn't matter, right? Because in this genre, it's this hyperbolic way where the victor tells the story of what in the world is happening. And some people think that the book of Joshua was written not as historical word for word, but was written in a, with a genre, with this um, conquest genre, because it was written in a time and a place, and it made sense along with all the people who were living in that time and place. They're telling the stories in the exact same way.
So I think that was like something kind of fascinating. It didn't really make my stomach totally settle, but it's like fascinating to realize we can't just read scripture, take it out and run with it. Like we have to recognize it was written in another language, in another country, in another time period. And we have to actually hold those things loosely and do the work before we just take what the NIV says and run with it, right? So there's work that we have to do. The second thing is because we are kind-hearted Marin people, we're immediately offended by verse 21. Like how in the world would God do something like this? But if you go all the way back to the first century, I mean, sorry, what is it, 1400 BC, right? These people, the language of their world and culture was violence and conquest. It was always who, which God is stronger. The way they proved it is by winning battles and not winning battles. And so there was something very similar of how Joshua lived, that all of his peers lived as well, that you go in and you dominate a a culture or you dominate a town and that proves that God wins. Just like, you know, the British saying, hey, that was the Protestant win, right? That still happens. So he said, this is God doing this thing. So in some sense, he lived exactly like everybody else. So it's not like he did something abnormal to his culture. He did actually something very similar to his culture. But this is what's so fun about scripture. When you start doing the dive, the deep dive, you start studying, you realize Joshua was a very different kind of conqueror than all of his peers. See, all of his peers would actually go in and rape, pillage, kill, wipe out everybody all the way around, right? Like if you think of like in the 1200s, Genghis Khan, like everyone's really scared. Like those guys are notorious because they just laid waste to the entire Asian continent basically, right? Even now we go, oh, Genghis Khan, he was an incredible warrior. Like no one is saying those Jewish people are incredible warriors, right? It's not like that there's a different way in which they live because Joshua was beginning to live in a new ethic, And it's not new for us, but it was new for him. So while he did come in and according to the scripture, right, kill every man, woman, child, and all the way down the donkeys, the things that he did do, which were different, which we don't feel this way, but for the biblical scholars, like you need to pay attention to this. You're going to love this. Any game of, like you probably don't want to save your Game of Thrones fans, not season one, of course. But so what happens is, right, what they would do when kings would go and they would fight other kings, they would take the losing king and they would impale them on a stake, right? And they would put him in the front of their city and be like, we won, right? And anyone who's going to mess with us, this was going to happen to the king. And they would leave them there forever until all the crows had eaten everything off them. That's how the world worked. But Joseph is a kind-hearted new sort of conqueror. So when he would conquer a king, he would put a king on a stake because that's what you did. But then he, after, before sunset, would take the king down and, you know, and bury him appropriately because he was trying to be this person who was following God's law, which for us, like, that makes no sense. But for that time, that was like this radical different departure. This other thing that Joseph did that was incredible is he was tricked uh, by the Gibeonites. There was this, there was this uh, tribe that lived in Canaan and God said, hey, wipe everybody out. And these, Can- these, these Gibeonites were like, we don't want to be wiped out. So we're going to trick Joseph. So they go and they wear all their ratty clothes. They get moldy bread and they go, Joseph, we've been traveling so far and we hear how great you are, which you're like, yes, tell me more. And he says, they said, listen, do not wipe us out. We will be your servants because we've heard about you. We've heard about your God. And he's like, yes, you've heard about me. You've heard about my God. This is going to be great. And, uh, and so what happens is, um, so they make a treaty with the Gibeonites. Well, sure enough, they find out that the Gibeonites are these neighbors. And now they're forced to this dilemma. Do they wipe out the Gibeonites or do they uphold their treaty? But because Joseph is a new kind of conqueror, he's, he's trying to live in this new ethic. God's like, listen, when you make a vow with somebody, you need to uphold that vow. And so he, instead of like what a normal ruler would have done, would wipe out the Gibeonites, he actually goes and 
lets that treaty stand. I mean, it's wild. Like, for us, like, that doesn't make any sense. And again, this only gets me like 70%. I'm even now today preaching, studying it all week, I'm still like 70% like, okay, I can kind of get my head around it. But I still think we have to, we're going to be honest, we have to do the work to wrestle with what in the world do we do with these scriptures that are so challenging? Because obviously the author of Hebrews is like something is happening here. And so that's where I want to get to because we can talk forever about this. I tried to talk way too long in the first gathering. I would love to have nothing more than have a coffee with you and go, let's talk about the literary devices and blah, blah, blah. Because it's, go, it's a deep rabbit hole. But for me, I thought this story brought up two very important takeaways that I want to make sure we don't miss in the offense of what in the world is happening because the Hebrew, author of Hebrews wants us to get something out of this. So here's the very first one. Um, sorry, Darrell, we're going to skip that scripture. We're going to go to the next part. Yep. So does anyone know what this is a picture of? Any history buffs? Okay. This picture came out of my eighth grade history textbook, which made me fall in love with history. This is Manifest Destiny. Remember that for all you history buffs? Um, so when I was in eighth grade, I learned all about Manifest Destiny. And what, what that is, is God loves America more than everywhere else in the whole wide world. And it's God's will that we would take all the land for God, of course. And because of that, it didn't matter if you were indigenous. It didn't matter if we destroyed the environment. It didn't matter what we did because this was God's will, right? That's what I learned in eighth grade. I'm like, well, I love God. I love history. This is like the best ever. I'm celebrating. Well, a couple of years later, I go, to, I go to UC Santa Barbara to major in history, find out very quickly that turns out no one is a fan of Manifest Destiny anymore, Right? Because now we know uh, we don't get to say God loves America better than everywhere else and we can do whatever we want because God told us, right? That's like, that does not jive. But what's funny is within six years, it, for me in my world, it went from this is the epicenter of a way to see the world to, whoa, what a horrible miss of how to interpret the world around us in six years. And so that's, that's here in America, in California, you know, between 1987 and 1993, right? That all happened in that chunk for me. And like, I'm still me. Like, like that was a big change. And I think what needs, we need to understand is culture always changes. We bring our cultural lens to every situation. We bring our cultural understanding to every situation. It's how we understand ourselves. It's how we understand how to live. It's how we understand the world around us. And when we look at scriptures, we have to have a humble view. This is why I said here that we are always invited to righteousness, right? That is always the key, that we want to be right standing people. We want to live righteous and holy lives, but we do not want to be self-righteous people because the way that we understand what it means to be righteous, we could be 100% wrong and find out. My kid's going to go to college next week, and I'm going to find out by Thanksgiving all the ways that I'm wrong, right? Like I'm ready for it. So we're called to be righteous. We always want to live with conviction, but we want to live with conviction in such a way that we're not crushing other people because, man, we could be wrong. So we want to have this humble posture. And I mean, we get this all the time. I, I love being from Marin. I love Marin Covenant. I cannot believe that God has gathered a group of people here in Marin to love him and to walk with him and to try to figure out how to be God's people in Marin in this totally weird post-Christian world that we live in, right? It's this fun challenge. It's super incredible. 
because we're trying to say this is the culture in which we live in and we're trying to be faithful to the gospel and be righteous people to this culture that has no idea about anything about the scriptures, right? And then I have friends uh, from other parts of the country. I had a pastor from Alabama come visit me. I've had missionaries from different parts of the world come and they drive into our parking lot and they're immediately judgy towards us, right? Because we have really nice cars and they walk into our bathroom. We have really nice tile and they walk into our, our CR and really nice chandeliers, right? And they're like, uh, you read what the scriptures say about finances and money, haven't you? And we're like, but we're Marin people, right? Because to certain parts of the world, we're like that chandelier would feed my village for six months. That chandelier is a stumbling block and an offense. For us, we're like, I love the lighting control here right? And we give money to help those villages, right? But we just need to understand that we have to have this humble posture because everyone is seeing each other differently. How we understand our sexual ethics and what's appropriate and not appropriate, what we think here in Marin, how we're going to try to live that out is, right, offensive to other people in parts of the Christian world. And so we're like, gosh, what, what do we do with all those things? And so it doesn't mean we're not righteous. It doesn't mean we throw out everything. It just means that we wrestle with the scriptures. We long to be righteous but we don't want to be self-righteous, right? We're going to wrestle these things to the ground. We're going to keep working out because we want to be not just righteous people, but now gets to the good part. We actually want to be faithful people. We want to be people who trust God, who put our lives into God's hand. So here's the main point. That last point was just like a caution point, but here's the main point that we want to be strong and courageous. This entire passage about Jericho begins with this, with this speech that, uh, that God gives to Joseph, that then Joseph gives to the people. And so if we go back to Joshua chapter one, it says this, as I was with Moses, so I'll be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. I don't have the next part. Sorry, Daryl. So be strong and very courageous be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? And finally he says one more time, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. And I just feel like that is what the, the word that the Lord has for us this morning, that we want to be people who in our guts know that the Lord is for us, to be strong and courageous, and that God will be with us wherever we go. What's so incredible in this passage in chapter one, God says this to Joseph, right? Be strong and courageous. Joseph then goes to the people and says, listen, people, be strong and courageous. And then all the people say back to Joseph, we're going to be strong and courageous. Like they're all pumping themselves up saying, listen, we want to be God's people. Whatever we do, wherever we go, we want to be strong and courageous. We want to step out in faith. Their first test was this city fortified by, um, by these giant walls. Like I said, that we can wrestle that to the ground. But the reality is, and the thing that I want to make sure we don't miss, because the author of Hebrews said we had something to learn about faith, is that we want to have faith like the people in Jericho. The people in Jericho, they marched around and screamed and shouted and played trumpets and looked like idiots. But God asked them to do this thing, and because they were faithful to this thing, God fought the battle. They didn't fight the battle, God fought the battle. And I think the encouragement and the challenge for us is that we are people that are willing to step out in faith, that we're willing to say, okay, God, I'm willing to take 
another step to be faithful to you. I'm gonna be praying extra hard for these things. You've been asking me to do this thing for a long time and I'm gonna do it, right? That we wanna be those kind of faithful people. And what's so hard is because that encouragement is such a gift that the, the story of Jericho gives, that gives us that if we get distracted and, and, and messed up by all the other stuff, that we actually miss this encouragement. And so what I wanted to do is I wanted to spend a little time this morning, I'm gonna invite the band out, that we're gonna just spend some time in prayer because this actual movement of stepping out in faith and saying, okay, God, I'm gonna be strong and courageous and you're gonna be with me wherever I go is actually a spiritual formation exercise. You, it's not just an intellectual thing. You can't just go, hey, that was a great B plus sermon. Okay, on to the next thing. You actually, like, it's something that you have to wrestle down with God. You have to be wrestling with, praying with, praying with each other about. And so what we're gonna do oh, is um, we're gonna do just that. So this is your opportunity, again, to take out your phone, um, tag me if you're gonna go on social media. I'm just teasing. Um, okay, so the way this works is on your app, uh, go to um, the, go to, what's it called? The Church Center app. Okay, so if you have the Church Center app, you're gonna click on that. Then once you go to the Church Center app, you're gonna click down to groups. All right, and then when you click on groups, it's gonna show you all the groups that you're in. And many of you are in the Summer in the Scriptures group. So then you click on Summer in the Scriptures. And at the very top is a little, um, is a little thing that I wrote. And it's just a little bit, um, and this is kind of what we do every day in some of the scriptures if you want to participate. But I'm just gonna read uh, the instructions. It's not that it doesn't feel that spiritual, but I feel like it's a little clearer. I'm gonna read these instructions and then we're gonna spend a few moments being quiet and silent in prayer. Um, and then the encouragement is for you to actually write down one of your prayers in this group. Because what that does is that allows, it's an act of faith to put out there of gosh, God, this is the thing you're inviting me to. It's an act of faith of our community to be praying for each other. And then it'll be a celebration when we get to share about the ways that God has showed up. So here's the, the simple um, instructions and they'll be on the, on the screen as well. So right out of Joshua 1.9, have I not commanded you to be strong and courageous? Do not be afraid, do not be discouraged for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. So here are the instructions. So while we're called to live rightly, we are also called to be people of faith. Like the ancients of old, we're invited to live by faith, to step out and to follow Jesus and to be Jesus's person in the here and now. So as an exercise, we're gonna lean into this verse in Joshua and embrace our calling to be strong and courageous for the Lord. If we truly believe that God is with us wherever we go, where do you need the Lord to show up, to fight your battle and to make himself known? The battle at Jericho was an example of this, God sent them, they put their faith into action and marched, and God showed up and won the battle. So would you be willing to share the battle that you need the Lord to fight for you in order, sorry, will you be willing to, fight, to share the battle that you need the Lord to fight for you or an invitation that God has put on your heart to step out in faith? And we as a church community will pray alongside you. Uh-oh, and if, you're, if it crashes like mine just did, you can just try again because... The app's not prepared for all of us, technical difficulties. But the invitation is to spend some time in prayer and to think about God, where have you invited me to step out? And I shared in the app, um, the, two, the, two, the two things for me is one is an invitation for prayer. I've kind of written my dad off. I'm like, there's no way my dad's ever gonna come to faith. I've been praying for him for 40 years. And uh, the last like five, I'm like, well, good luck. And I realized, well, I don't wanna give up on my dad. And so I'm going to make an added uh, intention and faith 
to be praying for my dad. And uh, there's a woman, the second is a more um, miraculous ask, which feels outside of my wheelhouse. Um, there's a woman in my world who is destitute and doesn't have any housing and her housing's about to fall through. And I've used all my wisdom and smarts to try to solve this problem and cannot do it. And again, this is gonna have to be, okay, God, you have to show up. Right, so those are, those are two that I at least felt comfortable sharing with you. Um, but I'd love for you to think about, is there a place that God is inviting you to step out into? Is there a prayer that God is inviting you to lean into? And then, gosh, if you'd be willing to share that with our church community, we would, what an encouragement to be praying alongside of each other. And you'll see first hour's responses in there. So let's do this. If you guys would just be quiet and close your eyes, the band's gonna play a little bit. And over these next few moments in the beginning of the song, please write down those prayers and then we'll, we'll wrap everything up after some time of worship. All right, God bless you.